Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare hi there everyone welcome to dan snow's history what a treat is to have you listening to this podcast this episode of History... Do you know what? This was fascinating, this episode. I got to talk to the very wonderful historian in Washington, D.C. We had a lovely chat. His name's Charles King. He's a professor of international affairs at good old Georgetown University. He's written a best-selling book, an award-nominated book, about Franz Boas, an academic in the early 20th century who redefined the idea of normality at a time when the world was very divided by scientists into categories of race and gender. Franz and a group of anthropologists really working with him, nearly all women, interestingly, helped to challenge all of that and lay the foundations for our understanding of the world as it is today. It is so fascinating. So please enjoy this podcast. If you wish to listen to all these other podcasts without... Yes, without listening to the ads on the front. That is perfectly possible. You can do that at History Hit TV. It's our new digital history channel. It's like Netflix for history. You use the code POD1, P-O-D-1. You get a month for free and your second month for just one pound, one euro, one dollar. Pretty sweet. So please do go and check that out. Also, we are selling out of our history hoodies on our shop. I had to get on there today and buy some for my kids because actually we are running so low. There is not even any left for staff. So please head over to the shop and get some hoodies and all the weird historical stuff you need for that strange, hard-to-buy-for member of your office, family, or friendship group. In the meantime, everybody, here is Charles King. Enjoy. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Charles. Really happy to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. This is a fascinating story. On the dawn of the 20th century, let's take the US and Britain. What did people think was normal when it came to race, sex, and gender? Well, if you went into a what was called a natural history museum, you would have been exposed to certain truths about the world that were historically and scientifically demonstrable. That the world was divided into a set of things called races, and that individuals inherited a race from their parents and then passed down that race to their children. In that kind of human packaging, was contained not only physical differences that could be measured in one way or another, head shape, femur length, and so on, skin tone, but that all those packages also contained everything else about you and about the group to which you were assigned by nature. So your capacity for leadership, your artistic talent, your ability to reach the heights of civilization. And, you know, you would walk through a natural history museum and you would see the progress 
of humanity from so-called savage peoples through merely barbarous peoples all the way to fully advanced and civilized people who just happen to look like northern Europeans and their colonial descendants in various parts of the world. So this was not a fringe idea, the concept of racial categorization and racial ranking. This was the scientific and popular consensus of the time. The intellectual gymnastics, of course, are quite profound to achieve that. But one thing, just on a side note, how did they deal with the unhideably barbarous beginnings of said European, North European white people? So did they allow for any idea about progression? You wouldn't have to deny the fact that at the time in which, you know, Northern Europeans were living what by the standards of the day would have been considered barbarous existences. And there were great civilizations rising and falling in West Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia and elsewhere. You know, people would always, though, begin from the perspective of the present. And so in some ways, it didn't require that many intellectual gymnastics at all. I mean, just open your eyes and look around the world. Britain and its overseas colonies and its political and cultural civilizational descendants around the world control things. They've created this massive, you know, industrial technological revolution. Every bit of data that your eyes, your ears were getting at the time seemed to confirm the very stories that you would be told in a world history class or a natural history museum. So in fact, it took some intellectual gymnastics and some hard work to believe the opposite of the stuff that your eyes were telling you. Well, tell me about some of the people that started questioning that and doing those gymnastics. Well, the book I wrote, The Reinvention of Humanity, is really about a group of scholars and activists and writers who set out to demonstrate the essential connectedness of human beings, but in a rather innovative way. Because, of course, if you look at the great sort of religious and philosophical systems around the world, the concept of the essential unity of human beings is a thing that runs through lots of different ethical and religious systems. But this group set out to show scientifically that you can't divide human beings up into lesser and greater, more civilized, less civilized, advanced, and primitive, that those boxes themselves are a product of a particular time and a particular place, a particular culture, if you want to put it that way, and not human universals. They consisted at their core of a guy named Franz Boas, who was of German-Jewish background, immigrated to the United States in the 1880s, later became a professor of anthropology, a new field that he helped to invent at Columbia University. And from that perch in his seminar room, created the entire discipline of what is now known as cultural anthropology in the United States by emphasizing the idea that you can't live intelligently in the world by coming to it with your own culturally determined, socially determined set of analytical boxes. The way to live well in the world, scientifically in the world, is to not put yourself automatically at the center of some story of human evolution. And his students went on to become some of the most famous social scientists of the century, Margaret Mead, Ruth Benedict, the novelist Zora Neale Hurston, who's very famous in the United States, one of the key figures of the Harlem Renaissance, but was also a PhD student of Boaz's. And what I try to do in the book is sort of reintroduce her to a set of readers as a social scientist, not just as a, as a writer. What was it about that moment, him and his students, that made it possible, that made it acceptable for him to start reimagining this? 
Well, I think all of them at some point in their lives had a very similar kind of revelation. And it often took place in the field when they were going out to do their anthropological field work. For Boaz, as a young man on Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic, for Margaret Mead in American Samoa, very famously writing Coming of Age in Samoa in 1928, which became probably the most widely read piece of popular anthropology ever. Ruth Benedict working in the American Southwest, Zora Neale Hurston working in Haiti and Jamaica. And then their individual lives, you know, these were women at a time when uh, trying to make academic careers at a time when that was very difficult for women, when Ruth Benedict as an associate professor at Columbia University couldn't go to the faculty club because she happened to be a woman. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, the only black student at Barnard College at Columbia at the time. These were all outsiders in one form or another. And they had the same kind of realization that the winds that are buffeting me in life, in my career, when I walk down the street, the assumptions that people make about me and my talents and my abilities, either those are true, that I am backward, I'm broken in some way. Mead and Benedict were in a lifelong loving relationship at a time when that had to be kept secret between two women. So there's something deviant about me, and I really am as bad as the society around me says. Or there's something about the relationship between me, I'm fine, and the social categories and norms and expectations that I'm surrounded by that are constraining me in some way. And so each of these individuals were particularly well-placed to understand the power of social norms, categories, expectations, totems, if you want to use that anthropological term, in the way that their life arcs worked out, because they all experienced it. These were the people who were, the science of the day would have said about a person like Hurston or Mead, constrain your ambitions because you're just not culturally capable or inherently capable of the heights of civilization. And they chafed at that. You say in the book, and it really strikes me, that that this important phrase that Boas looked at other cultures from a position of respect. And it's very simple, but it seems that everything grows from that seed. If you begin with the idea that you have something to learn from another society or another group of people or something that seems very unfamiliar to you, not to be afraid of it. You know, Mead once said that her writing, her career was about getting people not to fear difference of whatever sort. You know, the difference is the normal state of human society around the world. And so don't be afraid of it. Try to understand it in some way. It doesn't mean you have to then agree with it in a moral sense, or you don't have to think some cultural practice is a, a universally good idea, but you ought to and where it comes from, what function it serves, what are the historical roots of it. And, you know, we now take this to be pretty fundamental to a broad-minded, capacious view of the world. You know, we kind of take this as obvious or given, at least in some quarters. But at the time, in the teens and 20s and 30s of the last century, this was pushing against the scientific consensus of the day and pushing against virtually everything that particularly white Northern Europeans, Americans, and others said about themselves. You're listening to History Hit. More from Charles King on these remarkable anthropologists after this. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. 
This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. To be a white male affluent New Englander or Brit in 1900... It would have felt pretty lopsided. You would have felt like, hang on a second, God must have tipped the scales here because the technological cavern, the healthcare outcomes, the di- you, know, you name it, between you and many societies around the world would have appeared like precipitous. If you observe the world and you see this great chasm between your own achievements, the achievements of people who you believe look like you and the achievements of people who don't look like you, It's the easy thing to think is that this is due to your own brilliance. You know, this is due solely to your own personal, inherent, civilizational superiority. The harder thing to do is to say, wait a minute, maybe there is some history here that I need to understand. Maybe there are things that we now call structural impediments, you know, that have prevented or that continue to prevent people who look differently or speak differently or organize the world differently from achieving the same kinds of things that I have achieved. Or maybe I'm located, this was a big point of Boaz's, maybe I'm located inside history. That stopping the clock where I am right now and then doing my entire analysis of the scope of human history and seeing it as leading inexorably to me Maybe I'm just being a bad historian. Again, the science of the day was pushing the opposite direction. And the thing that Boaz realized is that the science itself was serving a very contemporary purpose, right? Because what was different about 20th century colonialism and 20th century white supremacy and so on, and Boaz recognized this, is that while it's true that every society of which we have knowledge often puts itself at the center of some human story, that's a very normal thing for societies to do, to you know, see that God has ordained them to be a particular way or to believe that their own customs and food ways and practices are the natural and obvious ones. That it seems to be a human universal. The difference in the 20th century was to structure your politics, to structure your biological and social sciences, to structure your museums, your, to structure your elementary school classrooms around proving scientifically the inherent inequality of human beings. You know, and so that by the 20s and 30s, of course, the United States in particular had created the world's most perfect system up to that time 
of racial categorization and segregation. Before the early 1930s, the United States state governments had subjected a larger number of individuals than anywhere else in the world to forced sterilization so that they wouldn't reproduce themselves and reproduce the defects that the governments had said they were likely to reproduce. So, you know, everything was pushing in this direction that we know what scientifically and culturally advanced is, and we're going to use the power of modern government to realize that. That's a difference I think that Boaz recognized. Margaret Mead is one of your extraordinary characters in this book. And talk to me a little bit about her trip to Samoa. Mead was a doctoral student of Boaz's. She finished her dissertation in the early 1920s. And typically you would write your dissertation based on what you found in the library. And then you would go off after that and do your own initial field work. And she had done some work on Pacific cultures and felt that she had sort of teched up in that area and then set off for American Samoa where she actually lived with an American family. She didn't live in a Samoan household. She was sort of physically a very fragile kind of person, even as she was setting off around the world to do these quite remarkable adventures. And so she lived for about nine months in American Samoa with the idea that she would do a project on a group of people that anthropologists up to that stage had largely ignored, that is, women and young girls, you know, I mean, it's remarkable, we've been talking about race, of course, but the gender components of how people created vast theories of, you know, man with a capital M. It was, I mean, they were always based on men with a small M, right? Not on trying to understand these perhaps less accessible dimensions of the human experience that the male anthropologists traveling around the world just didn't have, have access to. So she was particularly interested in how people navigate the transition from childhood to adulthood. She was a young woman in her early 20s, growing up in New York, going to college and and graduate school in New York in the 1920s, right, in the roaring 20s, where the talk was about civilizational collapse. You know, this is the first youth revolution in the United States. People are worried, older Americans are worried that society is collapsing as people are dancing with Charleston and drinking bootleg gin and so on. And she wanted to know whether that was a human universal. And what she concluded in Samoa is that really the fundamental angst that Americans seem to be experiencing about a thing called teeners at the time, or teenagers as we would call them today, that this really wasn't a human, this didn't seem to be a human universal, that societies structure the transition from childhood to adulthood in different ways. And again, this is a kind of thing that we think of as pretty obvious now, but the book was an incredible hit when it came out in 1928, in part because it was marketed very well. And this was an American social scientist saying that Americans themselves might have something to learn about child rearing and adolescence from alleged primitives in the South Pacific. But it began Meade's career as a kind of intellectual grenade thrower, which she was until she died in the 1970s. Why Mead was both a social scientist and in some ways a very talented social scientist as well as an activist, and she was less good at being an activist. Sort of of later in her life, there was nothing that Margaret Mead didn't have an opinion on. (laughs) She had an opinion on absolutely everything and would go on, you know, radio and television programs in the 60s and 70s at the height of the sexual revolution and let her views be known. But, you know, on the analytical side, I don't think there's an obvious conclusion about how an individual family or an individual parent chooses to raise a child, which she was making really a point about the, the entire social context, right? So how did society at large deal with the transition from childhood to adulthood? You know, her point was really not that American society 
is structured one way sexually and Samoan society is structured another way sexually, but that in fact observable sexual behavior in both societies seems to be pretty similar. She was an American college student after all, and she knew what went on in the dorms at Barnard. It was just that how the society chose to talk about those issues, what it chose to keep secret, what it chose to be embarrassed about, those were the things that really differed. And then, you know, this set the stage for 40 and 50 years later, the great studies of human sexuality that would come out during the sexual revolution that, of course, revealed that, you know, newsflash, people lie about sex all the time. (laughs) And, you know, that was, again, one of the early insights that Mead had. History writing should constantly be changing. I mean, our understanding of the past, as we have access to different kinds of sources, ought to change. The characters we focus on ought to change. These things are never written in stone, or if they are, it's really not history anymore. It's building a monument to something, or it's being hagiographic. It's not history writing. And you know, this was also something that Boaz, as a social scientist, really insisted on and taught all of his students. You know, follow the data. Try to create as much data as you can, and then follow it wherever it leads. Try to get rid of your own prejudices and realizing that you're never going completely to get rid of them. But do your darndest to to work around them by exposing yourself to as many different ways of seeing the world as as possible. The one lesson I should draw from your book is that science was very, very dodgy (laughs) at the turn of the century, right? Is science different now or or do we still have to be very sceptical about science? And that's got big implications for issues around climate, around about pandemic. Like, how should we feel about that? One of the key theories that the Boaz Group came up with, cultural relativism. People are always worried that this means you can't make any decision about anything. I mean, you know, does this descend into a kind of intellectual, moral nihilism in one form or other? And And I think one shouldn't be too worried about that, but you have to take the core of what they meant. And I think this is sort of a good lesson for today, that we can make decisions about the world, but we ought to do so on the basis of evidence. You know, So when you're thinking about history or science, teaching them that a scientific or historically grounded outlook on the world is about the use and judgment about evidence. You know, It's not about a set of stories, and it's not about a set of heroes, and it's not about one kind of narrative. In fact, you should expect lots and lots of narratives. But how you distinguish them is digging into what counts as evidence for a thing. Because the president tweeted something, not evidence. You know, because I happened through a Google search to come up with something, not evidence. And I think that's where... You know, if we're thinking about reforming also history education and what do schools do, having students do less of learning of narratives and heroes and less monumental history, if you like, and more dealing with sources, you know, the critical analysis of sources so that you can make good guesses, conclusions about certain things based on the evidence available to you. But then still understanding that, as with any science, that is, of course, contingent as better evidence comes along. The old Karl Popper notion of what science is is a pretty good one, and I think it applies to the sort of evidentiary humanities as well, that science is simply the falsification of hypotheses based on observable data, you know. And if you're making claims about the world, I know something is true because Q 
told me, <laughs> and I saw it on the internet, that is not a falsifiable proposition. A conspiracy theory is by definition not a falsifiable proposition. And so there are ways out of this, but we're living in a moment where the sharpening of thought care about evidence, understanding what counts as data. All of these are absolutely crucial, crucial things. Study history, vaccinate yourself, inoculate yourself from propaganda and craziness. I think that's something that's super important as history and the humanities comes under pressure over the next few years, I'm sure. Thank you so much. That was just fascinating. I'm going to let you go. I could talk to you all day. What is the name of the book? The book is called The Reinvention of Humanity. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, thanks very much. This was really such such a fun conversation. I appreciate it. Hi, everybody. Just a quick message at the end of this podcast. I'm currently sheltering in a small windswept building on a piece of rock in the Bristol Channel called Lundy. I'm here to make a podcast. I'm here enduring weather that, frankly, is apocalyptic because I I want to get some great podcast material for you guys. In return, I've got a little tiny favor to ask. If you could go to wherever you get your podcasts, if you could give it a five-star rating, if you could share it, if you could give it a review, I really appreciate that. Then from the comfort of your own homes, you'll be doing me a massive favor. Then more people will listen to the podcast. We can do more and more ambitious things and I can spend more of my time getting pummeled. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.